If you have your Bibles, please pick them up and turn to Joshua chapter 8 as we're continuing in our teaching series in that very book, a series called Victorious, the Gospel in the book of Joshua. So thus far we've been following the nation of Israel and their journey from wandering in the wilderness and into possessing the land of Canaan, the land promised to them by their God, promised to their forefather Abraham five centuries earlier. Last week, we agonized alongside of the Israelites as they attacked the city of Ai after tremendous God-given victory over Jericho. They went to Ai and experienced a stunning defeat. And what we learned through this defeat is that sin derailed God's people. There was sin in the camp. And that is the reason why God's people were not successful in accomplishing what God would have them to do. And we've learned that we are a community, that there is no such thing as private sin. Our sin always affects other people. It's never private. And so we learned that God's people can experience failure. And today, chapter 8 picks up after the nation of Israel had experienced tremendous failure. Let me ask you this as we get started this morning. Have you ever experienced failure? I mean, I'm talking, have you ever failed to where the fear and the anxiety and the regret can just be crippling? Joshua chapter 8 is the morning after. The morning after the failure. How you pick up the pieces and say, okay, I want to experience fullness in God even after what happened the previous day. And every one of us fail. All, all of us are sinners that are desperate for God's grace. So how can you experience joy in the middle of frustration or of disappointment? And so how do you and I, how do we respond to failure? Let me give you the main idea, the primary truth from Joshua chapter 8, and then we'll begin to read. The main idea from Joshua 8 is that God gives His people victory and restoration after failure. So this is what we're learning today, is that God gives His people victory and restoration after failure. So even after God's people had failed, here's the key, God still had a plan. Their sin, their failure did not derail God's sovereign purposes. It's not possible. Nothing can stop a sovereign God from accomplishing His purposes to display His glory. And so our church exists to glorify God by making and developing disciples, a mission given to us by our Master Jesus. And yes, sin can appear to be derailing and and can cause great devastation, and yet our God is still on the throne and He accomplishes His plan for His people. And I praise God that He does not give up on us. I thank Him that even when we fail, He is still good and eager to give us victory and to restore us. He's not giving up. And so the Spirit of God is the one who empowers us to face our fears and and to come face to face with our failures. 
And we truly can experience victory and restoration if we will cling. I'm talking cling to God. Hold on to Him and not anything else. And so when you are disappointed, where, where do you turn to? What do you cling to for comfort? Because all of us are going to turn to something. And we'll see here in Joshua 8 that in the middle of disappointment and the failure of chapter 7, we are to look to, to cling to, to find joy and comfort in God. And so we're going to see this morning on how and, and why clinging to God gives us victory even after failure. So there are three particular truths that we're going to see about the character of God because we need to run to God, to himself, not to what he does, but run to him. Like we just sung, running to our God and clinging to him. And so I'll give you the first one, and then we'll begin reading. And so we must cling to our God who is infinitely wise. So I want this in your mind as we begin reading Joshua 8, is we must cling to our God who is infinitely wise. So in the middle of right after Failure, we must run to cling to, draw near to our, our all-wise God. And so we must trust in the wisdom of God. But here's where it gets hard. We tend to think that we know better. And we tend to think that we have more wisdom. Now, we, we wouldn't say that out loud, but our actions betray us. So we must cling to a God who is infinitely wise. Let's read Joshua chapter 8, the first couple of verses. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai as its king, as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Now again, remember the context here. This is picking up where chapter 7 ended, where they have just failed. They attacked Ai and were defeated, and many of the Israelites died. Now they were defeated and they failed because, again, there was sin in the camp. Because one of the Israelites, Achan, had stolen from God items that belonged to God that weren't offering up to him, Achan took for himself. And so sin prevents God's people from experiencing victory, from moving forward. But God removed that sin by having Achan executed. He had to pay. This is a review from last week. And so after that happened, now in God's infinite wisdom, you're seeing even though there is sin and people died and they're derailed, and yet in God's infinite wisdom, He can use that for His glory. And so even when we mess up, And we all do. When we do, we can trust that our God can take that, even our messes, and He can use that to heal and restore, to transform and to display His infinite glory. And we're seeing the wisdom of God here. And He tells Joshua, He's encouraging him. He says, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Why do you think God had to tell him that? Because after the defeat the previous day, it would have been quite natural, normal, for Joshua to have his confidence a little bit shaken, to be afraid, to have some anxiety. God says, don't be dismayed. There's hope. 
I am with you. The sin has been dealt with. Now you can move forward. Do not fear the enemy. I'm going to give you victory. And then God reminds him of his promises. He says, I will give into your hand, and he says, this land, the king and his land. And so he's reminding Joshua of his promises. This is your land. I'm giving it to you as an eternal possession. And here we see the key to how we must respond in the midst of our failures, knowing and trusting in God's promises. You don't focus on your sin. You don't focus on the failure. By God's grace, you get up, and oftentimes you can't even do it alone. You need others to help you, which is why we're a faith family. We do this together, and we help each other up. And we cling to, we know, we believe God's promises. And we focus on Jesus, not on our failure, not on the sin. You press forward for the prize that lays ahead. You live your life, the life with your hands on the steering wheel, and you're looking out of the windshield, not driving, staring at the rearview mirror, seeing what lies behind you. You press forward. And so God is reminding him of his promises. I am with you. Now let's read verses 3 through most of this chapter. And so Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all who remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So they will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city for the Lord, and your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went out to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai, with the ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent the night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all the Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. 
And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward this city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as they had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, Behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. They had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the elders came out of the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was none left that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai, they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. Remarkable story. True story. What you're seeing here is that Joshua is following God's instructions perfectly. He was trusting in the wisdom of God, God's instructions. He puts 25,000 men to the north of Ai, and he puts 5,000 men to the west of the city between Ai and Bethel. Now, apparently, Ai was some sort of a, a fortified outpost of Bethel because both Bethel and Ai went together to attack Israel. And it never mentions the Bethel king, just the Ai king. So it must have been the same kingdom. So we can see that these two areas, Bethel and Ai, that were next to each other were part of one kingdom, and both of them together go and attack. So what you have is Joshua's taking this larger group of 25,000 men coming straight up to Ai from the north. And of course, they have the guard towers. They see the army coming. And just like the last time, the people of Ai and Bethel now together go out and attack the Israelites. Now the Israelites pretend to be afraid, and they run away. And so people of Bethel and Ai are emboldened, and they're chasing down the fleeing Israelites, leaving the city wide open, not realizing that there were 5,000 men hiding right next to the city. And so then Joshua gets word of the Lord, he raises his javelin, he sends the signal, and these men that were hiding run out, capture the city, there are no men left, they set it on fire. And the people of Ai, who now turn around and they see smoke, this language of much like an offering is often used, where smoke going up to heaven is the symbol of an offering to God, where They turn and they see their city on fire. And it says that no man was left in Ai. And then it says they had no power to flee. No hope. They lost all hope. Their strength left them. They knew it was done. They they knew it was over. Their city was ablaze. And so then Joshua raises a javelin and the army turns around and now attacks them. And the other 5,000 men come from the other side. And now you have an AI sandwich where you have the people of God on both sides easily disposing of the enemy. Victory on this day over the very same people that had just defeated them. 
Joshua was trusting in his God. He was trusting in his God who was infinitely wise. He received God's word and he responded with obedience. He responded with trust. He was clinging to his God after they had just been defeated. There were no guarantees, but with God there are always guarantees. Yes, on this side of heaven, I'm not guaranteeing it's going to be easy. But Joshua knew who was with him. And so he responded with trust and with obedience to God who was infinitely wise. But here's the thing. Clinging to God in the middle of failure when you've just messed up and you were just defeated the day before, this is not easy. It's not easy when when someone tells you, hey, um, young person, high schooler or NYU Abu Dhabi student, you're not doing well in class. You're failing. You're not paying attention your work is poor, your math is terrible, and if you don't get some tutoring and work really hard, you're not going to make it. You're going to fail. It's not easy to hear that. Or parents, it's not easy when one of our teachers here in off-island kids comes to you and says, I'm really sorry, mom and dad, but your child is very disruptive. It's like a zoo up here. No pun intended. And your child is a ringleader. Your child is disobedient. Your child won't sit. Your child won't engage. You need to discipline your child and you need to teach your children. Who likes to hear that message on a Friday morning? You feel like you're a failure as a parent. And for the record, I've had teachers come to me and say, your children are disruptive and your children are not engaging. And to the teacher, I say, thank you. And then we have words when we get home, and discipline, and encouragement. And then the next week, back to the teacher, how was my son? How was my daughter? And praise God to this point, they say, oh, much better. But it's not easy. You you feel like you failed. You're like, oh, what's wrong with me? Or maybe in your workplace, you're being told, hey, you're not doing a very good job at work. You're blowing it. And you realize that if you don't get better at your job, you're not going to have one for much longer. Not easy to get that news, is it? And you feel like you're failing. Or someone says, Pastor, your preaching stinks. Well, you preach something good for once. And you think to yourself, okay, I'm a failure. Like, why do they come to hear me? And then I remember it's not about me anyway. I'm a flawed vessel like anyone else is, but it's God's word. But the reality is we can all be told that we're not doing well, that we're struggling, failing even. Maybe you're struggling with something much deeper than these examples. Maybe you're struggling with something more profound, like real anger or depression, pornography, alcohol. The list goes on. I I could keep listing, but you get the point. that Every one of us can have struggles and, and sense of failure. And whenever we find out whether we're caught or someone comes to us, we realize we're having a hard time with something, you know, our first response for all of us tends to be to deny. No, that's not true. Not my kids. No, not my preaching. No, not not me. No, 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 that's not possible. No way. We want to deny or maybe we want to minimize. Well, maybe I have a problem, but it's not that bad. Or we want to blame others, shift the blame, and say, well, you're the problem. 
or my wife, or my husband, or whoever, and we want to shift the blame to other people. Or maybe we just rationalize and say, well, yes, I have this issue, but really, and, and you find a way to excuse yourself. And so we, we can tend to, when we realize that we failed or are struggling, we can tend to want to deny. But by God's grace, we can move past that and come to the reality and have a response that is better but oftentimes on this journey, what we'll try to do is say, okay, I know I have a problem, but I'm going to figure out how to fix it on my own. Ever done that? Ever, ever? No hands raised, just mine. Okay, that's fine. Where we know that there's something going on in our lives, whether private or public, and, and we want to figure it out and fix it on our own. You can't. You can't. You're not able. You and I cannot use our own wisdom and make sense of this life. Our wisdom falls short. It's based on our own logic. And quite honestly, usually it's on what's easiest for us. And some of you, maybe you're trying to overcome things that you're, you're dealing with and things that are really tormenting you and you want freedom, but you want it on your own terms. You want the easy way out. You want victory, but you don't want to actually go to battle, and you don't want to follow God's wisdom. You want to do it on your own wisdom. Joshua followed God's wisdom perfectly, and they had great success. We need to follow God's wisdom. On your screen, there's, if you're taking notes, in the middle of our failure, God's wisdom shows us that we can't ultimately figure it out. And so we're talking about middle of our failures. We're talking about God's wisdom here. In the ultimate sense, God's wisdom shows you and me that we can't just figure it out for ourselves. We must humbly turn to our God and allow His Word to shape our thinking and to shape our lives. And so we must yield, submit to God, to His Word, and allow His wisdom revealed in His Word to be what guides us through the power of His Spirit. And so God uses our failures to show us our desperate need for Him. It humbles us and drives us to our knees. And we remind that we need to truly trust in our God and not in ourselves. Secondly, we must cling to God who is infinitely powerful. So we cling to Him because He's infinitely wise, but He's also infinitely powerful. It's in the middle of our Failures, we turn to an all-powerful God who can help us to overcome our spiritual daily battles. And you can change. Some of you are thinking, no, I can't. Yes, you can. You can change. You can experience victory. But you can do it on your own or in your power. It's the power of God that enables you. Following Him in community with other people. Speaking truth in love with God's power through His Word, through His Spirit, with His people. Not you on your own. You can change. We can. When we look at Joshua chapter 8, looking at this defeat of the people of Ai, do keep in context that it was the same situation in a lot of ways as with Jericho, which we saw in chapter 6. They could have repented. God would have forgiven AI if they would have repented and turned away from their evil and and put their complete trust in God. 
But people of Ai refused. Their hearts were hard. They refused to repent. They were hardened in their sin and in their pride. People of Ai, they hated God. They hated His glory. They hated God's people. They wanted to live according to their own evil ways and didn't want to submit to a holy God. They knew the character and power of God, and yet they went to the battlefield opposing Him, hardened, saying, God, we don't want you or your wisdom or your ways or your grace. We hate you, and we're going to go defeat your people. This is Ai. Pure evil. There's nothing good in them. And you see in verse 18, God's power over the enemy. Because behind Ai was the kingdom of darkness. Was our enemy, Satan, that wanted to defeat God's people. Because if everyone dies in Israel, then there's no Jesus. And so Satan wanted to wipe out Israel. This is something that's happening behind the scenes in the unseen world. You have to understand the enemy ultimately is the kingdom of darkness. But you see God having victory. And in verse 18, he says, The Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. So he's saying, I'm going to win the battle. This is not about better military strategy. This is the power of God. And he uses the word hand twice. He says, Stretch out your hand that has a javelin. I'll give them into your hand. This is talking about strength. Or for hand action, it's for power or for strength. So right here, this language of this javelin and having the people given to his hand is under his power. This is showing the power of God. And so God's good and righteous judgment was being executed on the people of Ai. So they killed everyone and they took the plunder and they burned down the city. In verse 29, it strikes us as barbaric, but it's true and it's in God's word. Verse 29 and he hanged the king of Ai on tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the center of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. They executed the man who was leading his army to go try to oppose God's redemptive purposes. And after they executed him, they hung his body on a tree, which is the sign of being accursed from God. Being under the curse of God is to be hanged on a tree. And then they threw his body and buried it in the rubble, just like Jericho, as a sign that this is what happens to those who hate God. Those who are aligned with the kingdom of darkness rather than the kingdom of light. But again, don't forget the context. These are the people that had just defeated the Israelites in the previous chapter. This whole story in chapter 8 is unfolding in the face of great failure and defeat. When they're having this power, this victory over the enemy. We all, look, listen, let's be honest. We all have problems. We all have things that would cause us to have our failures or our struggles. We, We all have challenges. And some people in the room... In your mind, your biggest problem is your health or, or your weight. And for you, this is a very serious, and there's some chuckles, but I'm being honest. There are some of you in this room that what consumes your thoughts 
if we, if we had a private value and say, well, what is the biggest problem? You'd probably say, my weight or my appearance or my health, something to do about your body. Others of you would say, no, that's not my biggest problem. My problem is time. I don't have any of it. I'm always so busy and I'm so stressed because there's so much to do. Others of you, your biggest problem, maybe your finances. And, and you live and you're really stressed and it's on your mind. And a lot of it isn't even your finances for today. It's worrying about tomorrow. And then, so what about retirement? I'm getting kind of up there in years and I haven't saved enough. And what if, what if the economy tanks like it did in 08? Are we going to have enough? Are we going to have enough tomorrow? And, and we fret and we really worry about our finances. Or for others of you, you don't think about that, but you've got some serious problems in your marriage. You have some relational issues, or maybe not your marriage, but other relationships. And you have some serious relational problems today. And today your heart's really heavy. Because even as we speak, God has given you in your mind the picture, the the face of that person or persons that you're not getting along with and you're really having some conflict with people. Maybe it's your job. Jobs here can be hard. Long hours and little respect. The pay can be reasonable for a lot of people, but even then, not always the case. People here that work really hard and get paid a thousand dirhams a month. Maybe your job has just been a real source of being a problem for you. Maybe it's your emotions. Life can be hard. Let's just, let's just be honest. Can we just not fake and play games? I don't want to be a part of a church where we just come on the front and we just pretend and play games. This is real. There's a real battle it's spiritual, and the hearts and souls of men and women are in the balance for eternity. And we all come here as broken people. One of us come desperate and needy for Jesus and for His healing and His grace. But what we tend to do when any number of these problems ail us, you know what all of us tend to do? I mean, let's just be honest. We want to control. We want to control what? the situation, or people, or manipulate people, so that way we get the most comfort and ease and try to basically take some emotional morphine to numb the pain. It doesn't work. Manipulating and controlling and taking emotional morphine to try to numb the pain is not going to work. That doesn't heal the problem. Let me give you the next, next set of notes here if you're taking them. In the middle of our failure, because all of us have struggles and failures, in the middle of our failure, God's power shows us that we can't fix our problems. You can't. You can't on your own fix your problems. You, you can try, and a lot of you, I'm sure, in the room, if, if we would take hands, would be honest enough to say, oh man, I'm trying to fix my problems and I'm just exhausted. And it's not working. The more I try to fix and control, the worse I'm making the situation. I'm hurting more people than myself, and I'm going further down, spiraling out of control, and it's not working. And the reason is that you're not eternal. You don't have ultimate power. You can't change other people. You can't change your boss. You can't change the economy. You can't change so many things around you. 
And we wish we could control and have everything perfect so that our lives are insulated and with no problems and no pain. But the reality is that the world is broken. Which is why God sent Jesus to restore, to redeem. And we have a future that awaits us. But on this side of heaven, as we're walking every day following Him, we have to be honest and say, I can't fix this. Jesus, I I give it to you. I admit I can't fix this. And trust Him and allow Him to satisfy you and allow Jesus to fill you, even in the middle of difficult circumstances. Hey, if you're here today and you're seeking, and you would say, if we asked you in private, you would say, I'm not a believer in Jesus. I don't know what I am. I'm an atheist. I'm a this. I'm a that. Or how you would define yourself. And you would say, but I'm certainly not a follower of Jesus. But you're here today because someone invited you and you're just checking it out. You're just curious. Let me just tell you something. If you would repent and place a complete trust in Jesus alone, you would have joy and peace, be reconciled to God, but your problems would not end. You would still have the same problems, but your heart would be transformed. Your disposition and how you see those problems would be radically different. And you would have joy in the middle of those problems. We're not in heaven yet. We're not. And so we are going to continue. We're in a war zone. Remember this. We are in a spiritual war zone. And coming to Christ makes you a soldier in the battle. It's not a country club. We're soldiers fighting against the enemy. Of course, it's going to be hard. There's always new battles. There's always new enemies. And in your heart, when you, when you, by God's grace, have victory over one sin, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have a new one crop up. You're going to have another one. Because we're corrupted. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have the Spirit, you have a new nature. But again, we're not in heaven yet. The battle wages on to love Jesus more than what this world has to offer. His Spirit will sustain you. But remember, our failures remind us that we are weak. Our failures sometimes are a really good thing. It reminds us that we're weak and God is powerful. And we turn to Him, trusting Him to sustain us, to change us. And we can draw near to Jesus and have joy even when it's hard. Especially when it's hard, because God is wise and God is powerful. Number three, cling to God who is infinitely merciful. You cling to God who is infinitely merciful. In the midst of our failures and disappointments, we know that God abounds in loving kindness and grace and absolute mercy. He loves us. God gave His people victory over the enemy. But understand that there was still a relationship that was fractured. The relationship between God and His people was still broken because of the sin that Achan had committed. Because that's what sin does. Sin breaks relationship. And just like sin breaks our human relationships, because it's true, if I sin against you or you sin against me, it's going to hurt our relationship. That's what sin does. It breaks it. And it does the ultimate sense with God. Our sin has broken our relationship with God. And God takes sin seriously. 
And so let's read in this very same story how God seeks to reconcile and restore a broken relationship with people. Verse 30 and 31. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the Law of Moses, as it is written in the book of the Law of Moses, an altar uncut, stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered it up, burnt offerings to the Lord, and sacrificed peace offerings. So what you're seeing here is he built an altar on Mount Ebal. And it says, this is fascinating language. And so he builds this altar, and then he says it is made of, it says, uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And so this altar that they offer sacrifices on, the Mount Ebal, after their victory, was made of stones that were not chiseled, that were not smooth, that were not shaped in any way, wasn't even squared. It was just uncut raw stones, and they built this on that mountain and offered sacrifices to God. And then what happens is he gets all the people between these two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Now, in between these two mountains, there's a city called Shechem. And all of the people of God are assembled, basically, in Shechem around these two mountains. And if you ever go there, and, and see this from what I've, I've not been from what I've read about this is it's a natural amphitheater where if you're up on Mount Ebal and you speak into this valley with the loud voice, it echoes and the sound is carried for a great distance. And so Joshua is on Mount Ebal and he begins to read. He reads God's word and everyone can then hear a similar on these two. Mountains in between on the valley. Verse 34, here's what it says. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. So Joshua begins to read God's word out of Deuteronomy chapter 28, written by Moses. Not long before this is happening here. And he's reading, it describes in that chapter, blessings and curses. Blessings from God for obedience and curses from God for disobedience to the covenant relationship. Now, if we're defining our terms, a covenant, what it is, a covenant is a formal relationship that's based on an oath with specific commitments. Okay? So, a covenant, by definition, what it is, it's a formal relationship, but it's based on a promise, an oath, and it has specific commitments that both sides agree to. So what you have is God promises, I'll be your God, I will bless you, I'll give you a land, you will belong to me, I'm going to love you, and God will say, and we're going to trust and obey you. And so here, so I'll be your God, you'll be my people. That summarizes the covenant. An example of this would be marriage in our world today. A church like ours, a lot of young families, this is a good illustration. Marriage, in one way, is very real. It's a covenant relationship where both husband and wife are promising to do certain things, that there's a commitment. I'm not going to leave you for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness or in health, till death do us part. I'll belong to you. Remember you said those? Remember? Yes, you remember that, right? You should. 
Because you were there, if you were paying attention. But you see, a lot of times, husbands go into the wedding day and then their marriage, and they're thinking about all the blessings. They're thinking about the blessings that will come from this covenant relationship. So husbands are thinking about what? Hot-cooked meals, right? They're thinking about clean underwear. Oh, it's going to be awesome. I'm going to have clean clothes. Someone to iron for me. Someone to keep the house clean for me. Someone to decorate for me. Someone to pick off furniture. Someone that I can go sleep with and have sexual intimacy with. And so the husband's thinking about all of these things, the wedding night and all, all of the blessings, the benefits of marriage. And But the wife is no better. She's going into thinking about the blessings too. She's going into it. What is she thinking about? Long walks in the evening, hand in hand. She's thinking about sitting on the couch and having long, meaningful conversation. The TV turned off. She's thinking about cuddling. She's, she is envisioning all the blessings that she wants to get from this covenant relationship. But neither one is actually thinking about the responsibility of the accountability. That, oh yeah, I forgot about that for better or worse part. And sometimes I'll talk to couples and I'm like, hey guys, it's for worse right now. Let's just call it what it is. Right now it's for worse. Right now it sucks. Okay, you promised. Right now you feel like it's a curse. You have to be accountable, be responsible for this relationship. Okay, God is with you. Let's humble ourselves. Let's beg God to heal. Let's repent. Let's forgive. Let's restore this relationship. See, we're accountable to God. We're in this relationship and we're accountable to Him, to obey Him because we belong to Him. But a lot of times we just think about the blessings that God gives and we don't, we don't remember that He is holy. We sing it with hands raised and our hearts are so gripped that God, you are You are holy. But stop and think what that means. It means that God can't ignore our sin. It means that we deserve hell because we have sinned against the holy God. It means that when you look at these blessings and curses, it means that every one of us can't match up, that there's a standard, and the standard is God's own character. And we see that God's law that they read reveals God's holy character. And then it also reveals the fact that we don't measure up. That we can't reach it. And all the law does is exposes our sinful hearts. It's like this week, my son had to do a project, a poster, and we needed to find some pictures online. It was this ancient uh, Greek city-states assignment. So we're looking for Google Images to put on this poster. And if you, if you Google ancient Greek, there's going to be some pictures that are a little questionable for a child. Well, my little girl who's seven, Abigail, comes in and she's like, oh, I want to see the pictures. And so at one point there was a picture that really it wasn't terrible but a little bit scary for her. Joshua, big brother, he covers the picture on the screen. Dad, scroll down. So I'm scrolling so she shouldn't see the picture. And what she said was profound for a seven-year-old. But she gets it. She said, Josh, move your hand. I want to see the picture. 
He's like, no, it's bad for you. You have nightmares. Don't see the picture. And she says, I didn't even want to see it until you covered it. Now that you've covered it, I want to see it. And I'm like, no, Abby, your brother is right. You're not going to see it. It's better for you not to see it. But what was she getting at? What does she understand that a lot of times, maybe sometimes we don't fully comprehend is that God's law, restrictions, is for our good. And it's God's holy characters being revealed. But the problem is we're already corrupted. And a lot of times what God's law does is it shows us our sinful desires that are already there. And once we're told no, once there's a law against it because God is holy, we don't want it. We rebel against it. And now we want to impose ourselves and we want to sin. And so the law exposes us for who we are. Sinners. Rebels. The law is good. The law is not the problem. The problem is our hearts. The problem is us. The problem is that we need a new heart. Because left to ourselves, we'll never meet. God's standard of holiness. It's impossible. We're seeing God's mercy. He's revealing His will. He's revealing His perfect standard. Saying, if you obey me completely, there's blessings. If you disobey me, you're going to be cursed. And then God provides an altar. An altar made without hands. An altar that has had no human work touching it. An altar where sacrifices are made and we are reminded that any work that we do will amount to nothing. This is pointing to Jesus. We read out of 1 Peter 1 this morning, our brother David read, the precious blood of the Lamb. And we approach Him by faith alone. Trusting in the work that Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, and God demands trust from us that we have faith in Him because faith is like the anti-work. God says, you can't work, which is why you have this altar. Sacrifices pointing to the need for Jesus who alone obeyed, alone kept all the law. And so all of the blessings belong to Jesus. And we who break the law, we who are cursed, we who deserve to hang on the tree under the curse of God, but Jesus who came and hung on the tree for you and for me, who was accursed for us. This is the absolute glorious gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what He has come to do and how He offers us forgiveness that we don't deserve, that we could never earn. He endured the curses for us that we deserve and now we get the blessings that we don't deserve. This is remarkable. In the, in the face of our failures, God's mercy shines so brightly and it humbles us and drives us to our knees. And if you're taking notes in the middle of our failures, God's mercy shows us that we can't fix ourselves. We can't. We can't fix our soul that is corrupted 
All you can do is cast yourself on the mercy of a holy God who offers you forgiveness. And being humbled by this incredible, magnificent work of Christ's sacrifice for you and for me. This is the way you come to God. This is how we're reconciled to God. After the sin in Joshua 8, there has to be a sacrifice in order to restore the relationship. But that was pointing to the ultimate, the final, the better sacrifice of Jesus. And so we trust Him. And by the way, you don't just come to Jesus, maybe today for the first time, I beg that you will. But you don't just come to Jesus with this. After you have come, this is how you grow. Remembering your guilt and remembering His glory. Every day focusing on Jesus. This is how we grow. This is how our hearts become changed by the Spirit of God as we yield to Jesus and we enjoy Him more than the world has to offer. Our desires begin to change. And then we want to obey. He helps us to want to. And God loves you. You have to know and believe this. Restoration is possible. Jesus paid the price. We're desperate for Him. Will you run to Him, whether for the first time today, with complete trust and repentance, turning away from your sin, or maybe for the thousandth time, run back to that place of mercy and experience the joy of your salvation afresh. We cling to a God who is all-wise, all-powerful, and all-merciful. This is what we're about. If you want to obey Jesus, enjoy Him. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise You, for we recognize that our failures remind us of how desperate we are for You, of how broken and needy we are, and how You made a way with Your Son's work on the cross I pray for anyone in the room that is grappling with this truth. May they repent and completely trust you. And those of us that do believe in you who are trusting you now, help us, empower us to continue following you, to experience the joy that comes only from following you, Jesus. We praise you, we worship you, we adore you, and we pray these things for the sake of your kingdom. Amen.